Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. A flash of brilliance and then utter darkness. Playfully, I typically use this term to describe my intellectual prowess. (laughs) Whatever brilliance I have is only fleeting, and then the obscurity of mind takes over. And in some ways, this phrase perfectly describes today's biblical reading, and thoughtfully enough, our church calendar. Our attention today is gathered together in the collect the biblical readings and reflections and church calendar that all have to do with this momentary brilliance of the Lord, displaying His hidden yet divine properties, only to be followed by impending doom, darkness, and death. If you follow along with any of the gospel accounts and pay attention simply to the images of light and darkness that are used, you will invariably stop at this moment in Jesus's life to note that this is probably the high point in those images of light and darkness. Yet on either side of this biblical story are warnings of what is to come. What follows the transfiguration is gathering darkness, which ultimately leads to the silent black tomb. And today in the golden white rays of light and the Lord's glory, we remember the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. In three days, we'll be smeared with the dust of the earth to remind us that we are entering that dark and sometimes troubling season of Lent, which brings us to death, our own. During Lent, we consider our sin buried in our hearts, which was the catalyst for the death of Jesus. Now that's to come, but for this moment, we are blinded by his brilliance. In the gospel, this moment on the mountain is of great significance for Jesus and for us. And these are the two primary things that I want to focus on. First is the significance of the transfiguration for Jesus. And then secondly, the significance of the transfiguration for his disciples. First, the significance for Jesus. Have you ever stopped to really consider the humanity of Jesus? I sometimes think that we, we don't really do much of that because somehow it might cheapen or um, lessen our understanding of who Jesus is as God, divine and perfect with power and authority. And so we turn away from the ideas of Jesus like us as human. Consider a, a few statements made about Jesus from the letter to the Hebrews. Chapter 2 says, we see him for a little while See him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And more specifically, in chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
It's hard to untangle this language about who Jesus is, meaning the author describes his suffering in humanity, but always within the context of his glory and divine authority. The author, in Hebrews at least, is working to describe Jesus' humanity, that he is fully human. Let, Let me just read a few of these key passages. A little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels, so that he might taste death through suffering. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus engages in everything that we understand and know about our own humanness, feelings and emotions, physical limitations bound by time, a body that makes us and him tired and hungry, and every possible temptation to sin. Have you ever thought of that? The one who resists temptation has greater temptation and knows it more deeply than whomever gives into it earlier. Jesus never submits to temptation. So he knows the full extent of them all. And talk about suffering. To be tempted is to, be, uh, to suffer. It's difficult and it hurts to keep from giving in to lust and rage and envy and gluttony and laziness and pride or greed. By this point in the gospel story of Mark, Jesus understands all of these temptations. Mark 1, chapter 13 says, and Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Just pretty clean, nice and simple. Matthew is a bit more descriptive and comments that he was fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. In addition, Matthew and Luke both describe only three of those temptations offered to Jesus. Greed and pride and anger, possibly. But Jesus knows what every single temptation brings to humanity. Death. Because he knows we cannot resist them and we will give in. Proof of this begins next week when we enter Lent, and each of us breaks our Lenten commitment the week later. We're going to commit to fast and pray and make confession, and we're going to abstain, some, uh, abstain from certain things like sweets or alcohol, and we will give in. This is embedded in our DNA. It's handed on to us from Adam and Eve in their disobedience in the garden. Okay, so come on, Shepson, what's the significance of the transfiguration for Jesus? I think it comes down to his awareness of the sin of the world and the consequences of it for him. He knows death is coming. The passages that Mark records immediately before this transfiguration story are, in many ways, a before and after, are like bookends to the things that are on Jesus' mind while he's on the mountain. Mark chapter 8 31 through 33 notes that Jesus's approaching fate sounds like this. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We have in that little picture a 
a temptation for Jesus, but at Peter's own hand, Peter's suggestion. A little bit after this transfiguration story in Mark chapter 9 and then uh, in, in verses 30 through 32, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. In other words, Jesus knows before they go up on the mountain and after they come down the mountain, he knows what is about to take place. He knows that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. So this is the context of the transfiguration. He knows he's going to die. Perhaps to take a break from his traveling ministry or to receive some refreshment from the mountaintop view, Jesus ascends Mount Tabor. You know that in the Bible... Amazing things happen on mountaintops. Abraham sacrificed Isaac on top of Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. Well, not all the way. A ram showed up because God, God stopped him. Moses meets with God at a burning bush in, on Mount Horeb, in Exodus 3. On the other side of that mountain, Mount Horeb, called Mount Sinai, he receives the law in Exodus 19. Solomon builds a temple on, on the mountain of the Lord. Isaiah calls it that in 1 Kings 8. And ultimately, Jesus himself is sacrificed on Mount Moriah near the temple where Abraham sacrificed his own son Isaac in the same place. Perhaps you've had a mountaintop experience also. There's nothing like that view from the mountaintop after a long hike. And oftentimes it those views show God's incredible handiwork. The creational uh, glory in those places is stunning. And those moments seem to put life in perspective and help us see who we are and to understand how grand God is. I've had a couple of those mountaintop experiences throughout life. The most significant of those, though, was shortly after college when sometime after a nasty breakup, I found myself in the wilderness, literally and figuratively. I was sitting on a mountain under a huge old white pine tree, the kind of tree that you couldn't, with two or three of us, couldn't wrap your arms around, just massive thing. Nobody was within miles and I was there waiting. It was a dreary, drizzly day, cold constant steady rain, low clouds, fog everywhere. And I sat on the lee side of this tree trying to keep out of that steady rain. 500 feet or so up on the edge of this mountain overlooking a huge dammed up watershed. I was weeping at the loss of everything, relationship, career, direction. And I teetered on the edge of discouragement and utter depression which had gripped me for months. The dreary, wet day reflected my weeping soul. And I was lost and afraid, uncertain of the outcome. A bit like these disciples after hearing Jesus say, your leader is going to die. So when Peter and James and John arrived with Jesus at the mountaintop on Mount Tabor, probably 1,800 feet or so from the valley floor, overlooking all of Israel, they are also in a state of mind that is uncertain about the future. Jesus has just said to them, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die. Jesus has been talking about these discouraging things. And it's in this moment when Jesus begins his instruction to them. 
His divine nature and character illuminate through his body and clothes, dazzlingly bright, radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, verse 3 says. It's hard to imagine that moment. Maybe for some help, St. John the Divine can instruct us. He describes Jesus in this way in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Now, take note, this is not John's reflection of the transfiguration, but it's his vision of the revelation at the end of the scripture. He says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's amazing. On Mount Tabor, while Jesus is blazing away, two key Old Testament individuals appear to them. These two, crucially, represent all of the scriptures. Moses representing the law, and Elijah representing the witness of the prophets. Now, somehow, Peter recognizes them. I don't know how that happens. Maybe maybe Elijah showed up with Peter in a fiery chariot. You know, I kind of imagine this. Elijah's like, come on, Peter, we got to go to Tabor. Hop in or we'll be late for the show. And Moses is like, "Uh, yeah, let's go. Hang on a second. I got to get my tablets of stone. And they jump in and the fiery chariot drops them off on the top of this mountain. I don't know how it happened, but somehow Moses and Elijah show up. In any case, they arrive there and they encourage Jesus. They talk with him, and they serve as evidence of the purpose of his life from ages long past. They serve as ancient historical witnesses to Jesus and his mission. The community of saints arrive for confirmation and to offer encouragement to keep going. Then, even better, a cloud overshadows them, and a voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, as quickly as it began, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. The significance of this moment for Jesus, I think, is the encouragement of his friends and the affection of his father. In the presence of Elijah and Moses, he's reminded of his mission. In the voice of his father, he's reminded of his father's love for him. So that's something about the significance of this moment for Jesus. Second, there are also lessons at hand for the disciples and for us. So we need to look at the significance of the transfiguration for the disciples. They are threefold. They're kept out of trouble. They're given insight into who Jesus is and his divine character. And they're given direction and instruction from the Heavenly Father. First, they're kept out of trouble. It's been suggested that these three disciples, Peter and James and John, were invited on this rigorous hiking adventure with Jesus because they were not trustworthy and might cause trouble while they were left behind. 
When they return to the mountain, here's my argument for this, when they return to the mountain, it seems as though the other nine have found themselves in a bit of ruckus because there was a, a boy with an unclean spirit and the other disciples were unable to cure this young man. And so there's a bit of difficulty there. And Jesus, of course, steps in and solves that problem. And perhaps Jesus takes these three guys away to keep the, the feisty disciples from um, messing up further, and he babysits them. And I kind of like the idea. When I was a young guy, probably about the age of the disciples, I was pretty good at finding trouble myself. So this sort of makes sense to me. Notice in Mark 8 that Peter has... Yeah, in, the, in chapter 8, Peter has identified Jesus as the Messiah, which he follows immediately with a rebuke for speaking about the mission he's on, to suffer and die. It's clear that Peter doesn't understand what he's talking about. He's out of his depth. In this story here, Peter seems clueless as well, and he suggests, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on, so how about we make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah because he didn't know what to say for they were terrified. And to be fair, Peter is terrified by the glowing, radiant brilliance of Jesus who talks with Elijah and Moses. Something serious is going on here. Peter picks up that at least. Jesus has previously been explaining about his life and mission to save the world from sin via death. And yet Peter does seem here pretty dense about what's happening in the moment. Now, for James and John's part, they're mostly just observers, but they are likely included in this hike because, like Peter, they also misunderstand Jesus. It's just a few short chapters later that they will pull Jesus aside and ask Jesus, would you grant that each one of us, one sit on your right hand and one sit on your left hand in glory? Though they've been walking with Jesus and listening to him, they seem to not really understand his purpose either. And so this is an important moment for them. The second thing about the disciples is that as a result of this moment, they're given insight into Jesus' divine character, which cements their mind about his mission. Following this story, at least in the Gospel of uh, Mark, except for James and John's silly request, the disciples are beginning to get on board with Jesus's mission, at least as far as they no longer challenge or openly question his motives and mission. It's such a profound moment for them that years later, when Peter writes in his epistle, he comments, we read it tonight, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter has finally, after many years, perhaps learned this lesson. Listen to him. And so now Peter is writing and he's saying, listen to him. 
In a sermon given in the mid-400s, Pope Leo the Great said this, By changing his appearance in this way, he chiefly wished to prevent his disciples from feeling scandalized in their hearts by the cross. He did not want the disgrace of his passion, which he freely accepted to break their faith. This is why he revealed to them the excellence of his hidden dignity. They realized the implication of this blazing light of Christ. Additionally, here's the third point, because they are given direction and instruction from the heavenly father. God himself from the heavens speaks to them. And we see in these verses from Peter's epistle also, as he reflects on the transfiguration, that this light permeates the darkness of our hearts for those who listen and receive the gospel of Jesus. In Peter's letter, he's encouraging his readers to follow Jesus, to give their lives to him, and to respond in faith so that each one would grow to be, as Peter says, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the voice from heaven, God, thunders a command to listen to Jesus. It's significant to note that in the ancient Near East, the mindset there was to, when you heard something properly, it was only ever truly demonstrated if you obeyed the word you heard. It wasn't just an intellectual thing, but it required, hearing properly required obedience. It required evidence of proper hearing. And so the disciples are being instructed to listen to the things that Jesus has been saying about himself that have been difficult for them to understand. That is, that Jesus would suffer and die a gruesome death and take away the sins of the world. They also need to come to understand that they too were to be bearers of this gospel to a lost living world that was living in darkness and that they would suffer like Jesus. One, one final word from Pope Leo. To help, he says, to help us do what he asked and to endure our trials and patience. We must have always ringing in our ears these words of the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This was true for me on that mountain day that I spoke about earlier when nothing made sense. As creation seemed to join me in that moment and I sat in my tears, behind me, off to my right, I heard the voice of someone say, you're going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Trust me. Now, the voice seemed so audible to me that I turned and I looked. There must be somebody back there. And how would they know what I was experiencing? I've been sitting there for hours. Nobody was with me, though, except God. And I realized that I was immediately and permanently comforted. I heard the Lord gently and lovingly tell me everything was going to be okay and I could trust him. 
The presence of the Lord, along with hearing his voice, was a comfort in my distressed turmoil and for the healing that needed to be done in the coming weeks. As I conclude, this moment of transfiguration is significant for Jesus and the disciples. Jesus is encouraged by his friends and the truths of their lives and purpose, pointing to him and his mission to save. Jesus is encouraged by the Heavenly Father who communicates His love and instruction. And the disciples are kept out of trouble, given insight into Jesus' divine character, and given direction from the Heavenly Father, which will eventually transfigure their own lives and future ministries. Perhaps today you too can find encouragement in this story of the transfiguration. May the transfiguration of our Lord encourage you and motivate you to a life of holiness and obedience. Please pray with me from the collect for the day. Almighty God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.